Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Place in Time, the podcast that puts American history in its place. We've got a special episode today that we're releasing in conjunction with episode 1.4. That's our latest podcast episode on Matthew Brady, Alexander Gardner, and the famous Dead of Antietam photographs. This episode is a conversation with photography expert John Milliker Jr., and it's all about the birth and history of photography in the 1800s. It's a great supplement to our Dead of Antietam episodes, and we'd like these expert interview podcasts to become a regular feature that accompanies our ongoing storytelling podcasts to give the stories themselves greater color, depth, and context. So, without further ado, let the show begin. So my conversation partner today is John Milliker. John Milliker is a professional award-winning photographer based out of Baltimore, Maryland. John and his team specialize in lifestyle, event, and fine art photography. He's also a teacher that leads regular photography classes and workshops. And if you want to learn more, or better yet, hire John for your next event, you can find him at johnmilliker.com. Also, John is an expert on the history of early photography and has an in-depth knowledge of 19th century photographic techniques because he still uses them as part of his business. And you know he's serious about it because John also has a killer handlebar mustache. So John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here, man. Thank you, Aaron. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure to have you aboard. Now, the reason that I've got you here today, John, is because the ultimate sort of destination that we're going to reach in our Place in Time two-episode series will be the Antietam Battlefield in 1862. And there, we're going to learn about the story of the famous photographs of the dead that were taken after the battle. But we're going to make a few story stops along the way, and we're going to learn a lot about the interweaving lives of two of America's most famous photographers, Matthew Brady and Alexander Gardner. First off, I figure we should set the scene a bit. Uh, John, can you tell us a little bit about the birth of photography in the 1800s and the men who pioneered it? You know, it kind of started with uh, Nisiphore Nieps. Nieps was born in 1765 in eastern France. He created a process that he called heliography, and basically it was sun drawing, and that was in 1829. Okay. And the photo, which is called the view from the window of La Grasse, is the oldest surviving camera photograph. And that was taken in 1827. And the way this worked is it was a, uh, a naturally occurring asphaltum that hardened in bright light. And anything that was not put in light did not harden. Nieps would eventually work with, uh, with Louis Daguerre. And Louis Daguerre was very famous in the theatrical painting, the dioramas, things like that. And he would come into a partnership with Nieps and work on uh, the heliograph and the, the physiotype, which was which was very similar. Nieps would die suddenly uh, from a stroke in 1833, and Daguerre would continue to experiment with a process that was not very much like what he and Nieps was working on. Uh, of course, he named it after himself, and in mm -hmm. 1839, he came out with the daguerreotype. Well, that's a question I, I have for you, uh, John, is I know that one of the earliest photographic technologies pioneered by Louis Daguerre was the daguerreotype. What is a daguerreotype? What is unique about it? A daguerreotype is a copper plate that is silver plated. It's highly, highly, highly meticulously buffed to a perfect mirror shine. In fact, the daguerreotype was nicknamed a mirror with a memory anyway. This silver polished plate was then sensitized in the fumes of iodine, silver iodine being a highly light sensitive chemical. And then it would be 
photographed. It would be exposed in a camera and then developed in the heated mercury fumes. Was it dangerous with all those chemicals? These are all chemical dependent processes and all these people back then, everybody was experimenting with everything basically. And yes, this was a very dangerous, dangerous chemical process. I mean, we use potassium cyanide now, but at least potassium cyanide, you, you know where it is. You can smell it. Mercury fumes, people didn't know what the problem was. And in fact, usually whenever I'm giving a talk, and I talk about the daguerreotype, I will ask the crowd, hey, you know, raise your hand if you ever played with, you know, mercury, rolled it around in your hands as a kid. And, <laughs> and a lot of anybody my age or older did. And, I, you know, we're still we're still kicking. That's fascinating. So mercury, not just the name uh, of a planet and a god from antiquity. It's also a highly dangerous chemical that can kill you if you mess around with it too much. So. We have Louis Daguerre and we have the daguerreotype. And I understand that during this sort of early period of photography, particularly 1840s, 1850s, daguerreotypes became something of a fad in the United States. And daguerreotype studios started uh, sprouting up in numerous locations, thousands of locations across the country. Why did daguerreotypes become such a, a fad in the United States? What did that fad look like? It was really the first time that we're just recording history. And we're recording a sitting for a person. And of course, it's it still is difficult. You got to realize if you sit for a painting, how long are you going to sit for that? Well, daguerreotype was about three to 30 minutes at the start. And people would sit for those. They were very expensive. And again, this is the first time that we're going from making a sketch, making a painting, something that's very artistic to something that's very mechanical. So into this this fad this moment when daguerreotypes are really catching fire in the united states is matthew brady born in rural new york early 1820s they don't know the exact year because matthew brady is kind of a mysterious figure he didn't write a lot about himself eventually he'll go to new york city to make his way as many a young man will in that day he launches his own daguerreotype studio and he opens it up on broadway uh down where the fulton street subway stop would be broadway and fulton and it's his prime real estate he's sort of a one-stop shop right because you can go to his studio and you can get your daguerreotype made then you can get a nice leather case for it there are a lot of famous and wealthy people hanging around that part of the city so he's able to get people of note to come into his studio and then he's able to take a daguerreotype of them and then hang it on the wall and it becomes the sensation because people will go inside his studio and they'll see all these famous faces hanging on the wall and they'll think hey I want this dude to do my daguerreotype so Brady becomes sort of a pioneer I guess you could say in the field of celebrity culture right he creates this interest and this following for celebrity images so I kind of think of Brady at this phase as sort of a TMZ like pioneer so before I go any further, are there things about Brady at this early stage, this embryonic stage in his career that you think are noteworthy or that you'd like to throw in there? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting. And there's, of course, Brady is being this larger than life promotional, just just master. There are a couple of things about his past that we really don't know. In 1855, now Matthew Brady was born to Andrew and Julia Brady. They were Irish immigrants. However, the 1855 census and the 1860 draft, Brady hmm. put his country born as Ireland. The thought is, is, was Brady born in Ireland or was Brady born in Warren County, New York? That's kind of an interesting thing. And we were, we were at hmm. a point in our country where the Irish were hated. And Brady would walk down the street and see all these signs, no Irish need apply. It's also important to note that when Brady started making these cases for the daguerreotypes, cases for daguerreotypes were very important. 
because as I mentioned, these are highly polished silver plates, which are very, very delicate. You can take your finger and just erase an entire line of history. Brady, as you had mentioned, being this larger than life character, his New York studio, mm -hmm. he was a master in promotions. Come have your photograph made by Brady of Broadway. He wanted mm -hmm. to be the, you know, basically the Annie Leibovitz of, of today, where he would photograph all the notable who's who, politicians, famous actors, actresses, everybody. He wanted everyone in his studio. Really what's going to bring Alexander Gardner and Matthew Brady into connection with one another is Alexander Gardner is he decides, I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to pitch myself to Matthew Brady and see if he will bring me on as a photographer to work in his studio. So he goes to New York, he pitches himself to Matthew Brady and Matthew Brady brings Gardner on board and they begin this incredibly successful partnership, even though it's not really a partnership because that would imply equality. Brady is the employer and Gardner is the employee, but they really mutually benefit from their work work together. So I was wondering, John, if you could talk a little bit about the dynamics of their relationship with one another. Well, it's important to state that after his visit to the Great Exhibition, when he saw Brady's work and became interested in photography, he becomes interested and learns also the wet plate collodion photography process. The thought is, when he comes over and works with Matthew Brady, Matthew Brady realizes, he sees the writing on the wall that this wet plate collodion process may dethrone the daguerreotype process. And there are also conflicting reports that possibly Matthew Brady and Alexander Gardner may have talked before that. And I've even read some people say that they believe Matthew Brady may even even financed Alexander Gardner's family coming over mm. to the United States. And not only is Gardner, you know, very skilled in terms of his technique and his knowledge, but also Gardner is something of a businessman, right? He had worked in finance in Scotland. Brady decides, well, let's take another shot at it, and I'll put Gardner in charge of that Washington, D.C. studio. And as we prepare to visit our next Place in Time story, I want to focus on these photographic studios, right? Whether it's Brady's studio or a slash gallery in New York City, or it is a studio that Gardner's going to run down in D.C., what was a studio like if you went to one of these photographic studios back in the 1850s, 1860s? What kind of rooms would you find? How was it set up? As soon as you come in, you're going to be greeted and you're going to be seeing basically like any phot photographic studio today or photography business, you're going to see the work on the walls. Matthew Brady, not only did he want to make your own likeness, but he also sold a lot of the negatives and a lot of the prints of the negatives that he had created some negatives that he had purchased. And when you come into the studio, you're going to see this. As I said, he had this great business sense to invite people into the studio. Come see Brady of Broadway. Come see the work of Matthew Brady. When you get into the studio, you would be sit down, or if you wanted a standing pose, you would be stood up in the location. And there would typically be just several, several skylights. Remember, we're not really dealing with electrical lighting here. We're kind of at the mercy of the sun. Exactly, Judge. So isn't it the case that skylight, sunlight, that's how you lit a photograph, right? You didn't have flashbulbs. You needed sunlight to light your photos. That's correct. Once you are set or stood, you would usually have a head brace, or they would call it a vice. And it wasn't a terrible thing. It had this, so on the top, it had this wishbone with these metal pads on it that were quite comfortable on the back of your head. They didn't clamp you down like a lot of the cartoons of the day. And that would help you to keep from swaying. 
chairs and furniture would have them built into the backs, or if you wanted to stand, you would have a, this apparatus on an iron stand. And it wasn't meant to keep you from falling over. You couldn't put your weight on it. And that's why a lot of the photographs of the Civil War, as we'll get to, a lot of the, the soldiers are leaning up against a tree or leaning up against something because it's difficult to stand still in time for several seconds and not sway. However, if you've got something on your body that is kind of registered with something that's not moving, it makes it a lot easier to do that. It's funny that you mentioned these objects that they would use to steady themselves, John, because I know that in Matthew Brady's DC studio, there was a very famous chair that got used in a lot of Matthew Brady's photographs. And that Brady chair is something that, you know, Lincoln would have used or Daniel Webster or Charles Sumner, right? The list goes on. So some of these props became famous in their own right for students of photographic history. Absolutely. And something I like to see is I like the photo of Robert E. Lee at Appomattox. You can see that stand behind him between his legs. Hmm. Now, I'm Abraham Lincoln, let's say, and you've got the vice behind my head and I've steadied myself on a chair and then I'm standing in front of your lens, John. How long do I have to stand there after you remove the lens cap and start closing the plate? Depending on the amount of light, we're talking three to uh, maybe 12 seconds, maybe 20 seconds, depending. It's not that difficult, especially when we're coming out of, of minutes for the daguerreotype process. So the old daguerreotype process, you'd have to stand much longer. This new wet plate collodion process is much quicker. And I understand, John, that collodion refers to the type of like cellulose material that you're pouring on top of the plate to prep it, right? They make it with egg whites, don't they? The egg white is actually the prints. The collodion process, we always say it's a nitrated gun cotton. It's a nitrocellulose. And basically, depending on when, when we want to talk about the chemical compound of it, Basically, the inventor of the wet plate collodion process, Frederick Scott Archer, he realizes William Henry Fox Talbot's attempt at the calotype. Talbot and Daguerre kind of were buttonheads a little bit when they were working on their own processes, to Talbot with the calotype and Daguerre with the daguerreotype. And Talbot's process is the process that eventually would win over, even though it wasn't at this point. The inventor of the wet plate collodion process would realize he would work with the calotypes. He was a sculptor. And he, he wanted to find something better. And he realized if he used this nitrocellulose, he can put these silver iodide chemicals on a glass plate. That nitrocellulose would stick to that plate. That's all it's for. It's, just, it's to stick to that plate. And then he can do basically what the calotype was meant to do, which was to make a paper negative that could be printed several times. The problem with the calotype, however, is it was slow because you were exposing through paper. And you also had to worry about the, the fibers of the paper. When we talk about photographic chemistry, silver nitrate is a negative working process. Where the light touches the silver, it darkens. And when you sandwich either the paper negative calotype with another paper negative, or you sandwich Frederick Scott Archer's now glass wet plate, which is the precursor of the tin type, but it's pretty much the same chemistry, with a piece of paper, a negative times a negative equals a positive, and that's how you make your several prints. If you ever look at a daguerreotype, one person can look at that at the same time, at one time. And that's kind of interesting for Louis Daguerre because Louis Daguerre was very similar to Matthew Brady. He was the showman of the world. He was working in theater. He was working in the dioramas. He wanted everyone to see his name in lights. I mean, after all, he named the process after himself. Don't I understand too, John, that uh, irony of ironies, Daguerre was camera shy? That's what I understand, yes. 
What a great story, huh? <laughs> now, and the funny part is, is that Louis Daguerre invents the process that one person can be seen at a time. It wasn't duplicated very easily. Mm-hmm. And William Henry Fox Talbot invents a process, but he calls it the calotype. And this is something that can be made copies after copy after copy after copy. So he makes the process that basically is, is world shareable, where Daguerre is, you know, one and done. Interesting. So daguerreotype makes a one of a kind image, but then later technologies progress that allow you to duplicate that image, right? So you can disseminate it widely, which is going to be very important for Matthew Brady's success. Brady is going to be in a transitional space as he's getting prepared to move into his new studio, his new gallery. He's got to slum it for a little while. And while he's slumming it in his temporary studio, there is going to be a very famous man from Illinois to come in and pose for Brady. And this meeting between the two men will have profound implications for both of their careers. Another thing I wanted to ask you about, John, is Matthew Brady mentions in the vignette to Abraham Lincoln that he'll be able to touch up President Lincoln's photograph or the future President Lincoln's photograph because Lincoln's suit is so wrinkled. The good studios would employ a lot of artists that would uh, that would put these negatives in a, a, a retouching box, basically. And this is a, a wood box with a, a place to put the negative. It usually would have a a shade or a hood over top of it and, and maybe something off the side to keep the light in. And it would have a mirror, almost like an old microscope, where you would use the mirror you would redirect that light up through the negative. And these artists would use knives to scrape away silver. They would use pencils to stipple in little details. They would even use India ink to completely whiten out a problem in the, in the image. They would even also at, at times combine negatives in order to make something that looked good. Did touching up a photograph cost extra, right? Maybe somebody like Abraham Lincoln, they'd have it done gratis, right? But if uh, you're a regular Joe and you want your photo touched up, uh, would that cost you a few extra pennies? Time is money. So retouching would have definitely, for a lot of photographers, would have been what you wanted to do. And yes, Matthew Brady, he wanted everything to look perfect. You know, he wants people to see either the print he made or he wants people to see the, the, the portrait on the wall. He wants people to see that and he wants people to look as good as they can. And certainly, John, I know that the touch-up that Brady does to Abraham Lincoln's Cooper Union photograph was successful because that photograph becomes a sensation. People really didn't know what Abraham Lincoln looked like. And then the image that Brady captured of Lincoln uh, became very popular and people got a sense of who the man that they were going to vote for in 1860 was. thing that I wanted to talk with you about as we're transitioning now in between stories. I know that there were other types of photographic technology that were being popularized at this time in the 1850s. I wanted to ask you about two in particular, tintypes and carte visites. I hope I pronounced that correctly. Uh, John, can you educate us about them? That's the closest I can get to it as well, carte visites and of course tintypes. As we talked about with Frederick Scott Archer, he wanted to create this, this photographic process that could be duplicated on, on paper. And what a lot of these photographs would have been exposed to would have been an albumin print. And, and the way the albumin print was, it was egg white and salt, silver and iodine being that, that magical chemical that I talked about earlier that is very light sensitive. And that would be the albumin and the salt would be coated on a piece of paper, allowed to age, and then brushed with silver nitrate. A lot of these photographic houses would sell these papers pre-albuminized already. And all you would need to do is float them on a silver nitrate solution and let them dry, sandwich your negatives, and go on. 
and that is using the wet plate collodion process as it was invented, which was to make a photographic negative. Now, we had realized that if we were to change the chemistry up a little bit and we were to underexpose this amber type photographic negative, we still get a negative. However, it's not so dense that if we were to hold that up to a piece of black material, either black velvet, or if we were to paint the, the back of the, the amber type, the piece of glass, we could see a perfect positive. And that's because when we're darkening this silver and we're creating this silver image, it is still a silver image. And therefore, the darks of the process, which is this silver, is still lighter than the black that you would put it on. When we're talking about ambrotypes, you mentioned ambrotypes as one of these technologies. I know that when I'm doing research and I go to like the Library of Congress's uh, online photographic catalog, so many of their Civil War portraits of soldiers are these sort of black-backed photographs with these sort of gilded frames. Are those ambrotypes? Is that what I'm thinking of when I think of ambrotypes? If you're basically seeing them on something that's black, yes. If you were to hold up a negative, it would be barely discernible from what it is. Interesting. However, if I were to hold that same negative up to the sky, you're going to see a perfect range of density. And this density is what we needed to create a print onto the albumin process. We're not modern where we have variable contrast papers and, and different developers now. You know, we're still working with a lot of the old stuff. But I will say, in contrast to that, if I were to take that same glass plate, expose it for a quote-unquote positive, and I were to hold that up to the sky, the density would be nothing. We'd be barely viewable. Hmm. And you needed to know that ahead of time. Are you creating something for a client to hold in a, in a case? Same thing with tintypes. Are you creating a tintype for a client that's a one-off? We're kind of back in daguerreotype territory almost, where we're making a one-off on a tintype, which is on a piece of Japaned iron or a piece of glass. And some photographers would use opal glass or other colored glasses. Or as I said, they would put black velvet where they would paint the back of this glass and they would make these positives, put them in the case and send you on your way. And I understand the advantage of tintypes, John, was that they were nearly indestructible, right? You could be pretty rough on a tintype. It would take a lick and it would keep on ticking, right? Oh, absolutely. Not only that, where they were a lot cheaper as well. And when you talk about the salary of a private in the army and you talk about the price of a tintype versus a, an amber type or versus having carte de visites made, it was pretty difficult to reach in your pocket and pull that money out. Interesting. Now, carte de visites, I know that they were smaller images, right, that you could basically print on something the size of a baseball card, right? They sort of acted as trading cards where you could have your image implanted on them, and then you can go ahead and give that to your family member or your friend, and then you can take theirs too, because there was such a proliferation of these photographic studios. It seemed that everybody had to have their carte de visite made. Where did the paper for these carte de visites come from? The paper was actually cardstock, but the albuminized paper for people that did it themselves, they would use just a regular typing stock, coat it in this salted albumin solution, and then allow it to age and dry. Sometimes they would double coat it, and then that's when they would pull the paper out when they were ready. They would float it on that silver nitrate and sandwich them together and make what could be called a contact print. And it should be said too, John, that Matthew Brady is very embracing of these technologies, right? Ambertype, tintype, carte de visite, you can get anything you can have any of those made at his gallery locations because he wants to stay current and he wants to provide people what they want. And so Matthew Brady, he wants to make his work accessible to as wide a purchasing audience as possible, right? So he'll wrap his arms around these technologies and try to profit from them as best he can. Absolutely. You've got to stay current. I don't know if Matthew Brady was the one that started this, but a lot of times we would have carte de visites or CDVs made of your family. They would give them to you in an album. Well, that album had just an interesting amount of free spaces in the back. 
It was kind of like, yes, it's kind of like baseball cards. People would use these for calling cards as well. And it was also very important because you had a lot of the population that did not know how to read. If you were handing out these calling cards for someone to come see you in a town, somebody can hold up that card to someone and show your portrait on it, basically, and they can get you where you needed to be. So for our next place in time story stop, John, we're going to go to Washington, D.C. in the summer of 1861. War has begun, and the dirty backwater town of Washington, D.C. is is going to be flooded by these young recruits coming in. And then what's going to happen is that Brady will be able to interact with a lot of these young men and Gardner, right, and photograph them as they're getting ready to go off to war. And I was wondering if you could tell me about that process of a young soldier going in to have his photograph taken before going off to battle. What are some of the hallmarks that, as a student of photographic history and the history of Civil War photography, you note about these young soldiers coming in to get their portraits taken? These young soldiers were absolutely ready to go. And there are reports that Brady may have had some unscrupulous advertising tactics, basically keeping these parents of these soldiers interested in, hey, when you get to, when you get to Washington, have a tintype or have a likeness made. But these soldiers would come in and they would gear up the teeth. A lot of them would borrow props and accoutrements from their buddies. So sometimes you look at a tintype of a soldier and he's just completely armed head to toe. And it would be basically the same thing. Before they would ship out, they would get a tintype made, have it sent back home. I wanted to give the listeners a Reader's Digest version of the first Battle of Bull Run. The reason Bull Run happens, first Battle of Bull Run, is that the Union Army is going to be sent from Washington, D.C. on a march down to Richmond to capture the Confederate capital before the first Confederate Congress can convene. And they're thrown into battle way too early, and they end up tangled on the banks of Bull Run with a equally inexperienced Confederate army, but the Confederate army emerges victorious and the soldiers at Bull Run suffer a massive defeat and then they all have to straggle back in and it's a great embarrassment to the Union cause. But what will come from this is that a new general is going to be brought east to take command of the soldiers that have fared so poorly at Bull Run and that man's name is gonna be George McClellan. And George McClellan is going to factor very prominently in our next episode. So as we reach the end of this episode, John, I wanted to give you a chance to plug your various and sundry products and offerings online and your different projects that you have coming up. Thump the tub, John. How can people find out more about you and how can they sample the wares? They can see more about me. They can find me on Facebook at John Milliker Photography. That's M-I-L-L-E-K-E-R or johnmilliker.com. Same spelling. Based near Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm a full-time practitioner, historian, teacher of nearly every process in photographic history from those first old and crusty processes to modern digital. And uh, we love demonstrating and teaching wet plate collodion, which is our favorite because that's something that we can do in front of everybody. Thanks again to John for being our guest today. I also want to send out a big thank you to Megan Burns, our Historic America intern who played the role of audio editor and mixer for this episode. Good job, Megan. 
If you want to learn more about John Milliker Jr., all his information can be found in our show notes, and don't forget to visit our podcast website at historicamerica.org backslash podcast. If you like what you hear, please give us a review, leave a five-star rating, and don't forget to subscribe. And if you don't like what you hear, don't go away angry, just go away. So, on the next episode of A Place in Time, we return to our storytelling tour through the lives of Brady, Gardner, and their famous Dead of Antietam photos. We will arrive at the battlefield itself and learn about the images that changed American history. 